My title tonight is very simple. It's getting right with God. It's one of those phrases that gets thrown out from time to time. You just need to get right with God. What does that mean? Why is it important? And how does the Word of God teach us that we can answer this question that's posed by Job a number of times in his fascinating and very old book? There are some questions we can ask in life, and they're so trivial. They're just completely unimportant. But there are questions we can ask which are absolutely vital. And this is one of those questions. If you turn to Job and to chapter 9 and verse 2, our reading, our text, and we could have chosen several, is there in verse 2. Job 9 and verse 2. Job says, I know it is so of a truth. I know this is so important. This is of vital importance, he says. And here's his question. But how should man or woman or a boy or a girl, how should we be just with God? That word just means right, righteous, holy. How should I be right with God? That's our question tonight. Getting right with God. Let me show you, but it's very clear when you read through the book of Job, he repeats this question a number of times. He does it in a slightly different way, and I think it's helpful just to turn to some of them. Job chapter 4 and verse 17. These give us a slightly different perspective on the question. Job 4, verse 17. Here's the question phrased a different way. Shall mortal, that means a person who won't live forever, we are mortal, we just live for a few years, shall a mortal man be more just than God? Shall a man be more pure than his maker? Here am I, I just live for, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 years. I'm a mortal person. I'm not immortal physically. How shall a mortal man be more just than the eternal, infinite God? How shall a man be more pure than the one that made him, who is utterly holy and pure and perfect? Oh, he phrases the question so well. If you'd like to turn to chapter 14 and to verse 4, we see it phrased slightly differently. Chapter 14 and verse 4, he says... Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No, not one. Here am I, I was born to a mother who was a sinner. My mother, who's now not alive, she was born into sin. 
And all of her three children were sinners, just like she was. Who can bring a clean, pure, sinless thing out of one who was born into sin? No, not one. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ had to be born by the Holy Spirit. He had to have the Holy Spirit giving birth and putting that one within Mary. Well, look down in the same chapter, verse 14. If a man die, shall he live again? All the days of my appointed time will I wait till my change come. We're going to die. What will happen when we die? Verse 15. Thou shalt call. God will call us. He knows the final breath that we shall make. Thou shalt call, and I will answer thee. Nobody will be quiet. When God calls, you will have to answer. You will have to stand before your judge. I will answer thee, and thou wilt have a desire to the work of thine hands. He'll say, what have you done with your life? What have you been? What is your nature? And we all know that our nature is the same as our mother's nature, sinful, corrupt. Verse 16, For now thou numberest my steps. Dost thou not watch over my sin? Just turn to the next chapter, just a few more verses. Chapter 15. Verse 14, what is man? The Bible asks that question several times. What is man that he should be clean? That's the great need of men and women and children. We're not clean. We're sinful. We're born into sin. We choose sin. We are sin. What is man that he should be clean? And he which is born of a woman, that he should be righteous. Oh, that's the question asked in a slightly different way. And then turn to our reading, chapter 25. And there it is in verse 4. How then, chapter 25, verse 4. How then can man be justified with God? Or how can he be clean that is born of a woman? You get the picture. It's asked in several different ways. Now, I want to give a slight detour tonight. This really is the question that swept the whole of Western Europe in the 16th century five or more centuries ago. How can we be right with God? Let me explain what that means. We've got children here. Some sat in the front row tonight. We've got children listening. How can we be right with God? If you're not right with your mum, you might go and hide in your bedroom. 
You don't want to face the music. You don't want to face up to what you've said and done to her or to your father, and you go and hide. You're not right with your parent. Or maybe there's somebody at school, and they've been mean to you. They've said and they've done something that was horrible. So for a time you go and hide. You don't look at them. You don't want to see their eyes. They've offended you. They've hurt you. They've done something that's caused a separation between the two of you. And now you can't look. It needs to be dealt with. There's something wrong. We call it sin. And so we go and hide and we don't look. There's hostility. Some grown-ups go on like that for years. You don't need to ask too many people here tonight, and within their families they would tell you, oh, they don't talk to so-and-so, they're not on speaking terms, they're not right with each other. You see the problem that we all have. Naturally, we're not right with God. That's the great problem. That's the question that Job asks. How can we be right with God? That's the question you need to ask tonight. If there's somebody that's come in and you don't have the answer to that question, are you right with God? You need to answer it tonight. How can I be right with my Maker, with my Creator? the one that I've sinned against. It's the universal problem. We're born into sin, shapen in iniquity, and we're born unclean. Yes, we choose to sin, we make it worse, but we have sinful hearts and sinful natures. Just going back to the Reformation, you may not know this, some of you have not studied perhaps, the Reformation, but you go back to the time, 1517, when that man Martin Luther was there in Germany, and there was two problems in the churches of Europe. The first problem was there was absolute corruption. The church was under the authority at that time of the Pope in Rome, and it was in a great crisis. The priests had to make a vow of celibacy. They would be set apart. They wouldn't get married. And yet very many of them, they had a number of women. And those women bore them many children. And so the priests needed more and more money to look after the children that they had fathered. And this caused a great problem in the church. There wasn't enough money to go around. And so they had to think up ways that they could draw more and more wealth. And so people began to ask questions. As the education improved, and more and more people learned to read and to write, they would ask questions like this. Is it really right? that God's vicar should be the Pope? And is the Pope really the successor of the Apostle Peter? 
And they discovered documents that had been forcibly and falsely and forged. And these documents gave really fabricated support for the Pope. And as people began to read portions of the Bible across Europe, they realized that the Bible gave no support for a Pope, for one man to stand above and all the corrupt priests and the witchcraft and nonsense that went on. But there was a second reason. The people began to feel a growing desire to be right with God. And this need started to spread. There started to be a work amongst the, the people of Europe. The church taught them that death was not the end, and that was right. Death is not the end. We do have to face the music. We do have to stand up to our Maker, our Creator, and our Judge, and that's right. We must stand before Him. And the people of Europe knew that. They knew that they would have to stand. But for 300 years, They'd been taught about something called purgatory. Purgatory. An idea that became the teaching of the church of the Roman Catholics from the 12th century. And they tried to comfort some of the people whose lives were not good enough. They said, there are some that are holy, the people in the church, the priests, although their lives were far from holy. And then there's the ordinary people. I'm just trying to explain it in a simple way. And those people would need to work off the sins that hadn't been forgiven by the priest. And to work them off, they would need to go to purgatory for a period of time. They would die, the very good people would go to heaven, that's the priests, and the people that had never done anything much wrong. And then there would be those that would go to purgatory, and they might spend a very long time there, or a short time. And here was their wheeze. Here was their trick. They said, you could go and get some discount vouchers. You can go to Tesco today and get discount vouchers. You get money off your shopping. But the vouchers that they had in those days were called indulgences. And initially these indulgences would be handed out. You might go on a pilgrimage. You might go on a crusade. You might go and stand and protest against another religion and you would be given your indulgences, your discount vouchers. And if your sin had entitled you to ten years only in purgatory, you could get it down to eight or seven. And then as time went on, this idea crossed the minds of the priesthood. Well, maybe we could sell these indulgences and they could be bought and you could be given your discount vouchers and you could collect them 
and your time in purgatory would be reduced. You could buy the favor of God. You see what they were doing? They were trying to help the people falsely get right with God. And it was this scandal, the scandal of the church, and then the scandal of indulgences that so vexed Martin Luther, who was in the Roman Catholic Church, and he started to read the Bible. Well, we'll come back to that to see what he discovered. Let's come back to Job's vital question. It's a rhetorical question. How can a person be just, right, righteous? Here's my life. I'm not righteous. I'm a sinner born into sin. And I've chosen to sin. I've made it worse. And I am sinful. How can I be right with God? How can I be made righteous? How can I be holy? Because heaven, it doesn't admit one sinner. Not one. Nobody will get to heaven because they're a bit better. Nobody will get to heaven because they've washed up a bit. Nobody will get to heaven because They've looked at others and considered that their life is worthy of heaven. No, the only way to get to heaven is if you are made holy. You have to be perfect. You have to be pure. And that's the great problem that Martin Luther discovered. None of us are pure. And purgatory is a fiction. And indulgences are just a discount voucher scheme. And so we have this great problem. If you turn back to Job and chapter 9, let me put it like this. You see, if God was just some fairy tale God, and like he's portrayed in the soap operas on television, he was weak and he was effeminate, and he had no power. And he said, oh, I'll let you in to heaven. Well, it would be okay. But Job says here, in Job 9 and verse 3, if he will argue with him, contend with him, God won't listen to a thousand words that you say. The verse isn't straightforward to explain, but it means something like that. You try and argue with God about your sin, that you're better than somebody else. A thousand words will fall to the ground. Verse 4, God, he, is wise in heart, and he's mighty in strength. He's not like the soap opera depiction of God. He's wise. He's powerful. He's mighty. And you know, he says, Job, everybody that's tried to harden their heart against him, nobody has prospered. 
You try and argue with God who is all-powerful, almighty. Nobody has prospered in their life spiritually. Nobody will get away with it. Nobody will get up the ladder. Verse 5, just to demonstrate this God, the God that we all have to do with, is a God of power. He's the God that moves mountains. He causes earthquakes. When he's angry, he can shake the earth. Verse 6, he can move the earth out of its place and even the pillars of the earth, they seem to shake. And verse 7, he can cause, cause the earth to go dark like he did when Christ was on the cross for three hours. And he can cause an eclipse of the sun, a total eclipse. And he's the God, verse 9, that when we look up into the sky and we see the plough and we see the constellations, he's the God that put every star in its place. He made the stars also and he put them in a pattern and he ordained that it should be so. You try arguing with a God like that, so powerful, so mighty. Verse 10, this God, he does great things that my little mind can't even understand, wonders without number. Don't you feel small when you read these verses and you see that the God that we will stand before, verse 11, lo, he goeth by me. And I don't even see what he does. He brings down a dictator. He collapses communism. He causes the Berlin Wall to fall in a day. And I don't even see what he's doing. I perceive him not. Verse 12. Behold, he takes away. Who can hinder what God does? And who will say, what do you do? Oh no, we can't argue with God. Job is arguing. Nobody will say anything to God that will make the slightest difference. So let's look secondly and briefly. We've thought of the question and the foolishness of it. What about man's solutions? Well, let me just put three before you. They're very obvious. Here am I. Let's suppose I start to feel my sin. I start to feel my need of being right with God. What do I do? Well, maybe I decide that God has a pass mark, like he does in some exams of 50%. And I say, well, surely I can get to 51, or maybe 75, and I can get to 76. I'll just do a bit better. Just smarten up my life, turn over a new leaf. But you know, it doesn't work, because God's standard is 100%. 
He's a holy God, three times holy. And he won't allow a 99% good person into heaven. You need perfection. We choose a benchmark that's so low. And yet our view of God, as this chapter 9 shows us, God is so high, so powerful, so holy. He can't let me into heaven unless I'm 100% righteous. So that one is a fail. But secondly, as many people have tried to do, and they do it today, they try to think of lots of religious activities that they could do down through the centuries, maybe making a sacrifice at the temple, maybe a bit like Cain, who brought of his own labors fruit and veg and placed it before God. But that wasn't God's way. Nothing that Cain could do would make the slightest difference to his track record of sin. A banana and a potato won't take away your sin. You had to come as Cain did with the blood of a lamb, with a death, with bloodshed. That was the prescripted way. That's the only way that will work. There is no forgiveness, no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. Martin Luther, before his conversion, he tried to hurt himself. And you know, sadly, people do that today. They cause self-harm, self-hurt. They think it gives some sort of pleasure, some release. People do it in different ways. They deny themselves. They think if I go on a fast, that will earn me God's pleasure. They wear things to constrict their body. Oh, there's been a thousand inventions of men and women, but none of them will do anything. But maybe, maybe we can think of a third thing. We look to somebody else and we think, well, because of who I'm related to. I'm a child of Abraham, said the Jews in Christ's time. He was my father's father's father. Maybe there's somebody here tonight. Your parents are members of this church. Maybe your grandparents were, or your great-grandparents. Maybe your own mother is a child of God. And somehow you're relying and waiting and depending just a little bit upon them. Surely I'll be fine. Surely I'm a child of Abraham. Maybe on that day some of their merit will be given to me. But tonight, if you're a child here tonight, Abel's sin was not covered by anything else than the blood that was shed on account of his faith in the prescribed way. All these are methods of man. So what's God's solution? 
How can a man be right and just and righteous before God? You've got to answer that question about your life. I've had to answer that question. How can I stand before God on the day of judgment? But there is, I want to give you not just law, I want to give you grace tonight. If you turn to Romans chapter 1, just one verse as we close tonight. This was the great discovery of Martin Luther in 1517. And it was almost as though this verse shone out like a flashing stroboscope light into his life. This is what he read. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, verse 17, for therein Christ, his power, the power of God, the power that is unto salvation, if you put your faith in that power, in the power of Christ to cleanse, to make us righteous, that's the only power that will do it, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for therein it's not my righteousness, it's not the Virgin Mary's righteousness, it's not your mum or dad or granddad's righteousness. It's not the Pope's. It's the righteousness of God. Revealed, demonstrated, shown, given from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. That's the answer. Martin Luther, his eyes open up. I can't earn salvation. I can't do it by going to Mass. I can't do it by penance, by discount vouchers. No, it needs to be a given righteousness. And Christ is the only one that can give it to me. But he doesn't give it to everyone. He gives it to those that have faith in Christ. But even faith is a gift of God, you see? He gives us the faith and he gives us the righteousness. I can't do anything. I just have to use the gifts that he's given me. I have to believe. I have to believe in Christ. And I have to go to the foot of Calvary. And I have to be washed in that healing stream, that fountain opened for sin and for uncleanness. That was Luther's discovery. The just shall live by faith. A faith given to them, and they're made just by exercising the faith 
that is given to all who ask. Lord, give me the faith we ask, the faith to believe, the faith to trust in Christ. And the Lord will hear your prayer. And then you'll be made clean and made right with God. May this be so tonight. For many here, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for this wonderful gospel. We pray it would be simple and yet so profound. It would be urgent to all tonight. And yet we would not scare any that they must stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for the life that they have lived. We know there is only one account that is worthy, the life that Christ has lived, and he will give that perfect life to all who ask for it so that we can be made righteous in the sight of Christ. O Lord, hear us and bless us now In Jesus' precious and worthy name.